Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Bill English, who is the co-founder and artistic director of San Francisco Playhouse in San Francisco. This is the fourth in a series of interviews about theater in the time of COVID. San Francisco Playhouse is large enough to be eligible for regional Tony, but it's still kind of a medium-sized house. Uh, are there similar-sized houses in other cities? You know, I'm, I'm not really quite sure. We're kind of an interesting size. We're about close to $4 million budget before the pandemic. There aren't a lot of theater companies in our class. The Arden is about the same size. Well, that puts you in kind of an interesting position because of the pandemic. So before we start, this is just for the podcast. Right now, there are two shows running, uh, The Jewelry Box and Songs for a New World. And Jewelry Box runs through December 25th, and Songs for a New World closes uh, New Year's Eve at midnight. When we talk about them, we'll be talking about them as if they're already closed, or Songs for a New World will be closing tonight, insofar as when it airs. So I'm just going to leave this in for the podcast so people can know and can go to SF Playhouse and get tickets for these particular programs. Bill English, let's go back. Had you already prepared the 2021 season at the time the pandemic hit? Oh, yeah, we did. We had it all ready to go, and we were on shelter in place on March, I think, 27th or 8th when we announced the season. But we also sort of imagined it was going to be over soon and that we were going to go back to work by the end of the summer. We were even hoping to, to produce Follies in the summer. We were that, you know, naive, I guess. So we went right ahead and announced the season that included six shows, including uh, The Ferryman by Jez Butterworth and Oliver, Chorus Line. We were fairly deluded. There was a show running at that point or about to open? Yeah, we were just about to go into tech with Real Women Have Courage. And we had the set loaded in and all the costumes and props and everything was all all set to go. And we had to stop. So you hadn't had a run-through of the show yet? We had had run-throughs. We had not had tech. We hadn't had our dress rehearsal. If we'd made it two more days, we could have filmed it at the dress rehearsal and then had, like many other theaters, like ACT and Berkeley Rep and other, many other companies throughout the country, they had something to broadcast right away. We didn't quite get that far. How did you hear about the shutdown and how did you determine, okay, we're dark? Well, the writing was on the wall. You know, Mayor Breed had shut down all the theaters where the city owned the property. You know, the opera, the ballet, the symphony, 
new conservatories in a building apparently owned by the city, so they were shut down. And then we actually were ahead of the state and city mandate to shut down. But things were spiraling, and it was so crazy that Susie and I both decided we really couldn't ask people to brave public transportation and and just, you know, a lot of the designers' costumes and props still had shopping to do. And so we just decided to call it. And then Mayor Breed shut down the city on Monday. That's Susie Damilano, who is your wife and the co-founder of San Francisco Playhouse, also a director and frequently an actor in several productions. And she also handles a lot of the, the money issues. Did you meet with her almost immediately and say, what the heck are we going to do now? We're still meeting, you know. <laughs> Considering that we were shelter in place with each other, there was nothing to do but meet. And so... We immediately tried to figure out what to do, although we did we did operate under the mistaken apprehension that we would we might be able to to produce Clean House, which was the next show on the season, and or Follies, which was on the next season. We started building the set for Clean House and Follies. But then one by one, as the summer wore on, it probably wasn't till about June that we just gave up on the season altogether. At what point did you begin to look toward streaming, which later became uh, your series of Zoomlet plays and your fireside chat interviews with people in theater? Well, we immediately realized that we needed to do something to stay in touch with our patrons and to keep them involved. And I guess the first was the fireside chats with playwrights that I think I started doing in probably late May, followed about a month later by the Zoomlets, which were the Monday night uh, short play reading series driven by directors who cast the show. And it was kind of a first rehearsal, open rehearsal, where the directors would talk about the play to the patrons and give the actors instructions, and then they would read and then talk about it afterwards, read again, talk about it again. So I think people really liked those. They were a real kind of like being the fly on the wall at a first reading and an insight into the director's, what a director does. How did you come upon that that uh, particular format? I think it just sort of jumped into my brain. I mean, people were talking about doing something that had the ability to give the audience an insider's view of the process of theater since we couldn't actually do theater. And I thought that this might be a good way to go. And it was very successful. We ended up having, you know, four or 500 people attending and, and, and donating so that the, the Zoomlets and the Fireside Chats were all self-supporting. I noticed that uh, several of them are now free online on the SF Playhouse website. Oh, they almost all are. You can go on, go there and watch. We have a huge library. The translator of art, Rajiv Joseph, Stephen Adley Gerges, uh, many, many great, 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 great playwrights, Simon Stevens, and a lot of local playwrights. And then the Zoomlets are mostly there. There were a few that we couldn't save because the rights holders wouldn't let us keep it. So, But, but the vast majority of 
the Zoomlets and the Fireside Chats are still available for anyone that wants to go online and watch them. Bill English, in June, suddenly Black Lives Matter and racism became the talk of of, uh, the United States. At that point, did San Francisco Playhouse decide to switch gears, do anything special? Absolutely. We immediately understood that we uh, shared some responsibility and, in fact, needed to do, do a better job of addressing the concerns of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so we really uh, focused a lot of attention on trying to make sure that our fireside chats and our Zoomlets were uh, at least 50% of people of color for directors and actors and playwrights. And we still are uh, maintaining that ratio. And then we also understood that our staff and our board needed to be more representative of our community, as was pointed out by the BIPOC movement. And so we we brought four board members of color on pretty much immediately and have been working with our, our staff to keep the ratio of people of color up higher to have a better representation of what the of what our community is actually made up of. So it forced you to suddenly do a self-examination. I mean, you must have been thinking in those terms beforehand. Well, I think we've always been good at at putting diversity on the stage. In terms of, of selections of playwrights, we've always had representation for playwrights of color and for women in our season and have, have strived for many years to do that. And then we've also had a, a capacity to cast, to do open casting in terms of not expecting all the roles that were written for Caucasian actors to be played by Caucasian actors. So our our casts have always, I think always, reflected the composition of our community in diversity. I think where we needed to do more work and still need to do more work was in the staff, and the board, with our designers, and with our audience to try and reach out to a wider audience and do things which will help us connect with a wider representation of our community. I guess that changes the way you look at future seasons now. Absolutely. Uh, Two of the three playwrights in our first, in our act one, were people of color and uh, two of the two of the playwrights in our act two, which is coming up, eight of our nine actors in the first act were people of color. And with art, we had a more than fifty percent of staff. So we've been, you know, we've been working away at it. Let's talk a little about this uh, act one season now. When did you realize that you were going to try putting together a? a virtual season, and while many other companies began using Zoom, San Francisco Playhouse did something different. Well, I just never thought that Zoom was acceptable, that it represented the shows well enough or felt immediate enough to the audience that we could charge people to go to it, or that our patrons who support shows would be likely to support Zoom productions. So... And I, I've never really been able to stay involved 
And I think Susie felt that way too. We tried and tried to watch plays on Zoom, but we had a really tough time focusing our attentions. And so we had the idea to to bring actors into the theater and film them live doing a play on the stage with three cameras and then edit that presentation live as well so we could get a higher quality product out to our audience quickly. What was the protocol, the safety protocol, to put these people on stage? Well, they're very, very stringent. Um, Actors' Equity Association has a whole list of protocols that you have to follow. And we actually had to create our own safety protocols. Um, and Susie and uh, Maggie, Maggie Cook and Danica Ingram have created this beautiful protocol book, which Actors' Equity actually is used to show other theaters how their protocols should look. But we also had to test the actors. For the first show, we had to test them twice before they started. Then for the next show, it became three times. And the third show, we had to test them three times before and twice during the filming week. So it's very challenging. The first show was art. How did you go about getting those three particular programs? Art, which is a two-person show, Jewelry Box, which is a solo show, and Songs for a New World, which has four performers. Well, Art actually has three, three characters. Um, well, I knew that I knew that we couldn't afford to do any big shows, no Oliver, no Chorus Line, that, that four would be the absolute max we could afford. And we did a lot of things to keep the cost down. Our, our production value shifted more towards uh, the sandbox level of shows that we do, you know, the world premiere shows that we did on a smaller scale. So the budget for the set was a fraction of what it usually is. And the designer pay and the, and the budgets for the various designs was also much, much smaller kept it to two, three, four actors. We also changed our lighting program. Usually we we have a new lighting design for every show, which, which means taking all the lights down out of the grid and then putting them back up in a different configuration according to the wishes of the lighting designer. And I just knew we couldn't afford that. So we created, Kurt Landisman created it for us. We created what, what is called a rep plot which is more common to like performing arts centers in the sense that you have a, a ballet one night and a, and a conference the next and a symphony the next and a play the next. And you can't be taking your lights down and putting them all up every night. So you create what's called a hang, a rep plot, which is designed to cover the stage well and which can be programmed differently from show to show, but it cut about $10,000 per show out of the budget. And the set design, the set budget cut about $10,000. We probably cut, I'd say, sixty dollars or $70,000 out of our budget for each show. And that's not counting doing small shows only actor-wise. So we tried to bring it down to something we could afford because we knew we were never going to bring in the box office on a streaming 
show that we could, when we actually could bring two or 300 people to Union Square six nights a week. The first show, Art. Second show was the jewelry box uh, running through Christmas Day. And that was Brian Copeland, who's done a lot of things with the Marsh. What was the story behind it? Well, it's interesting. I had heard about it for years. It was a, a show that our, our great publicist, who you knew well, Ann Abrams, who passed away not long after the pandemic began, not from pandemic causes, but she had been a big fan of Brian Copeland. And he used to have a radio show that, that Ann would get me on to, you know, to talk about the plays that were coming up, and much as I do with you. And uh, I got to know Brian, and Anne also said I should read this play. This was probably eight or ten years ago, and the play was The Jewelry Box. And I read it and loved it and thought of it as like an instant inner-city Christmas classic. But at that time, our programming was such that we just always tended to do a great big musical. Mary Poppins, A Christmas Story, you know, Groundhog Day. We always tended to do a great big musical at holiday season because we could really fill the theater and, and make, make money to support the rest of the season. So Jewelry Box just didn't really fit with our programming. But once the pandemic struck and we couldn't do the giant musical, then my mind spun back around to Jewelry Box, which I loved. And it seemed like an ideal choice for us. Now, Songs for a New World, I have the original cast CD. I assume it's been presented in a similar manner to what you have, but it's such a good score. It's kind of a review that deals with the nature of choices we make. How did you come to the show and get the rights? I had decided... Early on, we were going to do a musical review for the holiday season. And it was tentatively called Blues to Broadway. And what I wanted to do was to pick four of our our finest singer-actors and collaborate with them on the creation of a show, meaning helping them select material, doing the songs that the four of them had always wanted to do but never had had a chance to perform, and Dave Dabrowski, our uh, musical director, and I were going to work with the four of them to create this show as a collaboration. And we met four times as collaborators to pick the songs. And then we ran into a stumbling block in that with the pandemic and with the holiday season coming, we just couldn't get the rights to the songs in time to get the show up. And so I had to jump shift out of that show and wanted to stick with the same performers, which was, you know, Katrina McGraw, Rodney Jackson, Kate Heyman, and J.P. Gonzalez. And I wanted to stay with them and not abandon them. And the show that came to mind that the four of them would be good in was Songs for a New World. And I I went to the Music Theater International website, and lo and behold, it seemed like they were willing to allow that show to be one of their shows that they would allow a streaming production of. 
so I applied for the rights and got the rights, and we just shifted over fairly effortlessly. Songs for a New World, oddly enough, Richard, is another show that I've always loved, but we just don't do small musicals. You know, we haven't succeeded at doing chamber musicals. They, they, they've got to be the big ones. Like, we, we, we tried to do a couple of chamber musicals. We did Putting It Together, the Sondheim Review, and we did, we did Dogfight, which is a chamber musical. And we just never could generate the audience for them. So while I loved Songs for a New World, it just really never fit with our programming until the pandemic. And then, of course, it fit perfectly. And I think it's a great show for us to be doing now because we, we are entering a new world. This regime that's been in power in Washington is on the way out. We have a vaccine coming. I think we have reason to hope. And I think Songs for a New World is all about finding hope in the darkest of hours. And as such, I think it makes a good holiday show because holiday shows always are good if they focus on hope. Bill English, when I was watching it, it seemed as if the songs were recorded separately from what we saw on stage or not. That's correct. Actors' Equity would not allow singing on stage, nor would the city of San Francisco. You could have a church service at 25 capacity, but no singing. So we came up with the idea to, in a studio, to pre-record all the tracks of individual singers and then make a basically a soundtrack album of our production. And then when the actors came to the theater to be filmed, they were actually lip-syncing to themselves, kind of like a giant music video. Have you had contact with people uh, with COVID in the SF Playhouse family? Or has everybody been pretty much safe? You know, I just heard from an actor who had a positive diagnosis just a couple days ago, and that was the first one. And also, the, the actor is quite young, so I'm, I'm hopeful that they won't have a more difficult time with it. People in theater seem to have taken precautions, as people in radio have as well. I think KPFA, over the course of the year, has had you know, two people who were exposed. But um, insofar as I know, I haven't heard the latest. They may not have tested positive. I think the performing arts professionals and the radio professionals are have a, a more progressive mindset and maybe a little bit more civic-minded mindset. Bill English, uh, you said before that there is a second streaming season coming up. How are you planning to make the transition from streaming back to the theater whenever that happens? Well, the initial hope was that we might even by the fall have been able to seat 50 people. Now, that never came to be. But part of the idea behind streaming was to create the potential for a hybrid season where we could sit 25 or 50% of our patrons and other people who were more timid about coming out to the theater could then watch the show from home. So we, we, we hope to have had the best of both worlds there. So what we did was we divided our season into three acts. Act one was art, jewelry box, and songs for a new world. And so all those shows are open now. Act two has been announced, 
and it's going to have three world premieres in it, two of which are our commissions that we commissioned to be written, and one of which is a world premiere of a brilliant young black playwright from New York that we are going to co-produce with Lorraine Hansberry Theater Company. That second act, we're calling it, is going to go into rehearsals at the beginning of February. So we're kind of reverting to sort of the opera ballet symphony type where we have a fall season and a spring season and a summer season. And the reason we aren't announcing the shows too far ahead of time is we want to be able to pivot to a, a, a better opportunity. I think it's within the realm of possibility that the third show of our second act may allow some audience. That won't be until mid-April. Can you name the shows yet? Or? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the first show is going to be called Hieroglyph, and it's by Erica Dickerson Dispenza. Will be directed by Margot Hall and co-produced, as I said, with Lorraine Hansberry. Well, Margot Hall is the new uh, artistic director. She is indeed. And it's a play about a, a father and a daughter who are displaced by Katrina uh, and sent off to Chicago, where they have to start a new life. And all of the challenges that they face doing that, and the fact that the young girl, a 13-year-old, is a brilliant, brilliant artist and how it is her skill with art, talent with art, is expressed. The second show is a commission of ours uh, written by Julia Brothers, the actor Julia Brothers, who we've worked with many times, of course. And it's a play that she's written, and it's a solo show. And it's a play about memory and loss and uh, what, it, what is the truth, what is real in our lives, and how does what we remember actually resemble or not resemble the facts? The third show is going to be called uh, Shoot Me When, dot, dot, dot. And it's by Ruben Grijalva, and it's also a Playhouse Commission. And it's a play about a woman who is in her late 60s and has always told her two daughters to shoot her whenever she didn't know who they were or whenever she started losing her mind. And she's just starting to enter the early Alzheimer days. And so she's gathered the daughters together to tell them that they have to assist her in a suicide. Now that may sound very serious, but the play is actually very funny because the woman is quite an eccentric and original character and all of the machinations and plans that are set in motion by her wish to end it all come to uh, amusing and touching consequences. They're all world premieres. I think it's going to be very, very exciting. And the hope, of course, is that by the third show, you can start bringing people back into the theater as the vaccine uh, becomes more available, and I would think as well, uh, inexpensive home testing, hopefully. Like a pregnancy test that's about to hit the market. And you know, where the vaccine is here, it's going to be going out. We have no, long, no idea how long it's going to take to get to 
you know, John Q. Public, but we're open to whatever. We have an arrangement with our landlord under which we are not paying rent until we can seat patrons. And even when we can, we'll be paying rent according to the percentage of people we can seat. So if the city says you can seat 50 people now, then we'd only pay 25% of our rent. Is this because it's located inside a hotel and the hotel has to close? A hotel could actually open. They haven't opened, but there are hotels around Union Square that are open and functioning. This hotel hasn't opened. It's, it's kind of unfair because, you know, if you were a religious organization, you can currently seat, I believe, even under the new lockdown restrictions, or even under the more relaxed restrictions which were in place until this week, you could seat 25% of your, your people. But they haven't extended that to performing arts organizations, which is unfair, probably unconstitutional. I mean, it prefers, it gives preference to religious organizations. Religious, I, I, I think of our organization as a, as a company that is a spiritually based organization. Uh, and so for, for the city to uh, prejudice uh, against performing arts organizations over religious organizations is, of course, unfair. Bill English, uh, after the second act, are you beginning to prepare for what will most likely be a return to some kind of normalcy for the fall of 2021? You know, Richard, I haven't really got that far. I'm taking a little bit of a break from programming, and I'm thinking about what I call the third trimester, which is the, the third act of this season, and trying to think, how can I pick shows which will work for an audience and also work for streaming? And I think I'm a ways off from being willing to pick that third act yet the three shows that will go into the third act, and even farther off from willingness to think about the 2021 season. I don't want to get caught in a position again like we did in March of 20. I don't want to get in a position where I have to backtrack. One final question. Through all this, Bill English, how are you and Susie Damilano doing? <laughs> I just got asked that twice today already. We're doing well. We're doing well. We've been enjoying our home and our community, and we live about four blocks from our granddaughter, who's a four-year-old queen of the world. And uh, we've been enjoying cooking and getting good exercise and working on the house a little bit, deferred maintenance. And still busy working as hard as ever. But, you know, being home, then you're able to focus sort of more on on home things, you know. You've been listening to an interview with Bill English, who is the co-founder and artistic director of San Francisco Playhouse. The Zoomlet plays are all available, as are the chats about theater by going to SF Playhouse 
www.ghostsandmysticsradio.org. Songs for a New World closes tonight, New Year's Eve, but you can still catch it if you go to their website, sfplayhouse.org. And starting, I guess, in February will be the next set of plays. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.